I'm just curious, were you the oldest, the youngest, or somewhere in between? I was the older of two. I was the older of two. If you take a survey at any seminary and ask, how many of you are first sons? 90% of the hands in the room will go, will go up. 90% are first sons. I was a first son. And that's why I'm especially grateful. First sons are setups to go into the helping professions. Medicine, the clergy. Um, and so I'm especially grateful to my dad because somehow he knew that. That first sons especially need some grace from father because mother wants them to carry on this great something or other and they're going to catch it. They're, the first son's going to catch it. He's going to somehow have to take the weight of the family tradition and heist it to his shoulders. I had a friend of mine at Gordon Conwell one time where the professor asked, how many of your first sons? And it was 96%. So, yeah. Back in the back. I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about how you get your children to speak the truth. I mean, do you think that it's directly proportional to the amount of grace you offer or something else? And what, what makes you think about it is when you were telling your story about getting into car wreck, you told your dad that you've been drinking. That's not the first thing that came to my mind that I was saying. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose just from the hip, they learn inductively along the line that there is nothing that they can confess to or say that's going to bring the world down, where everything is going to collapse. We don't have that amount of power. And we'll get along if basically our dad thinks we're okay. We will get along. He will enable us just in that simple thing that we will say things really suck, but we will get along. I don't think there was anything I could have said to my dad or told him that I'd done that would have shocked him in a way that mother would be shocked. It just didn't exist. And I think the reason that that was so clear to me was that as he told me stories about being a boy, all of those said, I remember. I remember when I was your age. I remember what the world looked like. I remember what I struggled with. I remember as if it were not very long ago. And when you have a father who remembers what the world looks like as a child, you got a lot of hope. You got a lot of hope. It's the ones who try to transcend their childhood that'll kill you. Childhood is not to be transcended like that. It isn't by accident, I think, Jesus, instead of taking a child and putting all the adults over here and saying to the children, watch these adults, he flips it. He takes the child and says to the adults, unless you become as little children, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Or I think of a father in a swimming pool who tells a toddler to jump to him. And what that says, and that toddler will do it. Somehow, in all this moving water that he doesn't even know is water, it's just sunlit pool, somehow he, he jumps into his dad's arms. Uh, we learn a lot from that. There, there's just a lot to be learned there. Um, I think probably it's learned slowly 
but over the long run it will get in that even if everybody else thinks you're a jerk you can come home because I don't I don't we all make some we do some dumb things I've done some dumb things I tell my kids some of the dumb things I've done um, and that doesn't mean I'm less their father that doesn't they don't even interpret it that way stupid things dad did but they do get that our primary relationship is not over whether they are behaving themselves. There is not. I am not there. If anybody is, their mother was, but I'm not. Um, within reason, I'm not primarily there as moral instructor. Um, Luther said that the father is a priest to his family. And if I read that correctly, it means he's the absolver. He's the one who has a way out when there seems to be none. And it's going to be probably at his cost, or he'll be the only one in the room saying it, or every other parent will think he's being indulgent and being a softy. Let him think it. Let him think it. I became a theist that, after, or that evening after I'd crashed that car. You know, in many ways, that cemented some theism into me. Because if God's like that, um, things are going to be okay somehow. And also, I thought my, my Sunday school teachers were wrong. I just didn't know how. I knew they were wrong. I just didn't know how. Yeah. Well, Rod, I wanted to really ask you two things. Maybe I should just pick one. And I'll, the follow-up, I'm also thinking about that story when you were 16, you crashed your car, and I'm the youth pastor here, and so this is part of my observation, too. Okay. Um, here, we, we, I think I deal a lot with the culture of entitlement, is one way I call it. And how did, I know I'm betraying a little bit your, the spirit in which you're telling the story and how your dad has affected you, but maybe as a, and asking you to bridge over into clinical or developmental psychology, but how they want a theologian observe this. Um, possibly what would, what, what, what would your father's response would have been if you would have felt after you crashed your car that you were entitled to a new one? Because I think that's what a lot of people have and maybe that's some of the flags. And then secondly, I'd also like to ask your impressions over a book that was wildly popular a year or two ago in evangelical circles, Wild at Heart. Which you're probably familiar People with. People keep I'm ignorant of that book. I well, wish I it, could. It reminds me of that because all your illustrations with movies and sort of mm. especially Band of Brothers mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Tombstone. He he's also wild about movies and sort of man's movies and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. But so mm -hmm. disregard the second question then. Um, the idea of entitlement over grace. Well, it, it's the same thing as we were talking about with the homosexuality earlier. If the attitude is that, I don't know what does anything but the law. And it doesn't have to do so much with, um, I'm going to punish you until, as much as it has to do with, you simply are confused. You're confused. And you're just going to have to think about it. This is father to the child. Father to the child, yeah. Um, if there isn't that sense of, um, well, I don't know, I, I didn't have a lot of it, but there was some of, this is too good to be true. If there isn't any of that, but just sort of that sullenness that you find in the fatherless, that sullen kind of, you see it on kids today, that, that look of superior, um, prideful, 
I don't know what you call it. Underneath it is total fear. Is total fear. And sometimes I think maybe that might help too. When you will be honest enough and got the guts enough to tell me how scared you are, things are going to take a turn, not until. And just expose what it is. Just open it up. Um, but I, I, usually, I still think they are more tender than they put on. Things are more trouble than they're appearing in their body, their visage, their face, their demeanor. Adolescence is awful. One of the worst things that we ever say to our children is enjoy these years, they're the best you'll ever know. <laughs> Horrible thing to say to a teenager. Horrible. Horrible thing to say. To tell them that what's up ahead is worse than what they're in then. Because it's awful. Right? Is that right or wrong? I mean, would you like to repeat the teen years? Good grief. Um, and sometimes just saying that, that you remember how awful it is, will surprise them. Because they don't think you ever were a teenager. You're too old to have ever been one. <laughs> yeah. Rob, it sounds like your, uh, your mother kind of gave you the law and your father gave you grace. Is that an important mix? I'm not sure that it isn't built into the universe. In Lutheran theology, it's called the Schopfuchsordnungen. Um, the orders of creation. Um, Luther talked about that there were certain structures built into the universe that if you tried to transcend would break you. Remember when Mao said he was going to replace the family with the dormitory? There were some people who said they knew then that it was going to die. If you tried to go against the structures of the universe in that kind of a way. I'm not sure that a mother's calling, tough as it is, is during the day to adjudicate, if, if she is a mother at home, to adjudicate righteousness. He started it, Mom. No, I didn't. Yes, he, he hit me first. No, I didn't. That's, her call That's an awful calling. I could never do that. And it just doesn't quit. It goes on all day long. Accusations across, of, you know, claims of innocence, accusations of being mistreated. That's the day. That is how it goes. Um, uh, I remember Paul saying one time, being a mother is not a hard calling, it's an impossible calling. Um, but I know that, I, that in, in my family, and I've heard then as I've gotten curious about this in others, that some of us had fathers who didn't think that their calling was to carry out the execution that mother wasn't physically big enough to carry out during the day. Just wait till your father gets home. And that made a lot of difference. It is possible, I think, though not easy, to support mother, be supportive of her, and at the same time, not just have her be the presidio and you carry out the execution. Uh, I think that's, it's not easy, but I think it's possible to do. I would say to my children when they were young, you don't have to like your mother. You do have to obey her. Hard. So, 
any of you are her sons. Think about it. You know, was it all smooth with your mother? It sure wasn't with me. It just wasn't. I, I was convinced she was proof that somebody had achieved interplanetary travel. <laughs> I just... It was not easy. It just wasn't. She was the perfect doctor's wife, and that doesn't make for a great relationship with a son, to be a perfect doctor's wife. I only saw my dad snap at her once, but it just speaks volumes. We were there having dinner, and the phone rang, and my dad answered the phone, and evidently they were missing a meal that they had, a social meal that they had been invited to at another couple's house. And for just a moment, I saw it in him. He hung up the phone, turned and said, about all a doctor needs from his wife is she can keep a, a social calendar. Can you do it or can't you? Whoa. Another time I saw it flash out of him, he had for months and months and months, he and his brother had reservations to stay at the Yellowstone Inn. And we arrived there late afternoon, and there was this young woman behind the desk, and she couldn't find the reservations. And my dad said, I'm sure if you look, you'll find them. We're not, we're here, and we're not in a great hurry. You'll just go ahead and look. You'll find them. And it kept going like that. And finally, I watched him, and he said, young lady, I want you to go find those reservations. If you don't, tomorrow I'm going to, tomorrow I'm going to buy this place, and I'm going to fire you. <laughs> But it wasn't often. It was good for me to have seen those, too. Um, I, I learned a lot from those, too. Um, just following up on, on David's question, because you see, seem to set up a dialectic between law and grace with uh, father and mother. I think there is. Well, I can't, I'm not exactly there. Let's just do a little theology here. The, the, because men and women are different, but they are the same in the need for grace. And so that if my mother is law, uh, in other words, I want my wife and I to do a united front on 100% law and 100% grace, both of us. And so if, in fact, she is the law, then that sets the seeds for misogyny in, in, in well, my son because we hate the law. Ask her how things went with her mother. She is a graceful mother. Good. She has a graceful good. mother. Good. Um, good. And that, so, that's very rare. Uh, That's good. And, and so my, my question is, is, isn't it possible as we raise our, our children to be uh, supportive both in terms of 100% law, but yet both of us 100% grace? And then there will be a, an interplay, I suppose, in a way that comes out in a relationship. Yeah, I don't know that that can't be done. I'm, this is all experimental to me. I'm just thinking out loud. Right. And I think, I think probably my experience isn't isn't the universal one. It happened to be that it was the same for Paul with his mother, but I don't know at all that this is universal. Um, the kind of man, a kind of woman that a doctor looks for isn't always the kind that he should look for to marry. Doctors have a way of finding a particular kind of woman, and it isn't always what we really needed. I'll just stop with that. I don't know that that isn't possible. Thank you. But, but I, think, I think that the implication, there is a potentially misogynistic implication. But 
Well, the last, you know, I, I can't tell you how little I'm worried about women in America today. No, that's all right. I can't tell you. The whole culture is taking care of mother. Mother's tough. Anybody who can push a child through a birth canal is no weakling. Everybody on every point of the compass, 360 degrees around. Part of the reason I can't stand listening to news shows is that I think we're asking all the wrong questions. All the wrong questions. Boy, is mother going to be taken care of in our culture. No problem. The boys are going to be the cost of it. They will be the sacrificial altar on which mother is taken care of in 21st century America, unless we stop it. Could you explain what you mean by taking care of mother? <sighs> that always the first question on our mind is, have we upset mother at all? And I will defend the same things you'll defend, that we've done some awful misogynistic things and they ought to be called, exposed, and all of that. I'll agree with all of it. But for most of us as sons, that's why I said the other day, can you imagine anything that you can give your children that isn't filtered through mom? Because from dad they desperately need it. Something that isn't mom again. They desperately, especially sons, need it. I can't answer for daughters, but I sure know for sons that if I'm getting the same sort of message from, if dad is the same thing as mom, they're sort of a homogenized glob, I'm going to need to get out of there for a while so I can breathe. I'll feel it like suffocation. I've got to get into the world of tombstone. I've got to get into the world of Band of Brothers. I've got to, or I will suffocate. I have got to have something that is plainly male. I have got to have it. As I hear you talk, I think it... Uh, it takes a very secure person to be as graceful as you describe your father, which is the ultimate strength. Mm -hmm. And so it wouldn't be the abolishment of, of the law, but the fulfillment of the mm -hmm. law in the higher strength, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is God's image of the father. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and fathers, have the, fathers have the power that we have no idea that we've got. The culture portrays you and me as in every, sometimes I think if I see one more commercial where a sharp woman explains to her husband on an overhead cam is, I think I'm gonna shoot my television the way Elvis did. I'm gonna pull out a 357 Magnum, I'm gonna blow that Sony to hell. I am so sick of the portrayal that we get on television of what we are, but it just means that we're going to have to find a sense of it, not from that doggone tube, because it isn't going to do it. It simply will not. This culture is so feminine, it's just killing us. The boys will be the cost. The boys will be the cost, and we have hell to pay on it. And in Los Angeles, one of the ways in which fatherlessness shows up is what you saw in Heat, Al Pacino. You know. Uh, AR-15s in a street fight in downtown LA with carbines, 223 carbines, 
and that's the boy trying to invent masculinity when there hasn't been a father there and it comes out that totally off the mark totally off the mark but they haven't been given anything to work with they're trying to do it out of nothing they know there's something about it but they can't imagine what it is because there are no pictures inside um, Kate Linskoog, who recently died of multiple sclerosis, was one of the early C.S. Lewis scholars. And she writes of meeting him in England when she was doing her master's degree, uh, a book called The Lion of Judah in Never Never Land. And she used the same phrase of Lewis that I used of my father and of Paul. He was the most masculine man I'd ever met. That does not mean loud. It doesn't. My father changed a room by walking into it. He was utterly not a blowhard. Utterly not. He just came into the room and it changed. And it was grace. It was grace. There was somebody there who wasn't a moralist. It changed everything. A friend of mine told me recently they're having trouble in Africa in some of the game parks. The young male elephants are tusking rhinoceros to death. And people, that's never happened before, and they didn't know why. And they realized they're shooting all the old male elephants, and there are no role models. <clears throat> and that reminds me of our society mm -hmm. with young gangs and mm -hmm. young males are looking for Yes, they are. They are looking. One of, the, one of the things, I used this the other day, if I start to cry, I apologize. If you rent that Bill Moyers interview with Bly, he's got them all in this room, and it just sort of comes to him, it looks like. He says, all of you older men, everybody get up. You older men, come down and sit here in the front so we can honor you. And the old guys sort of don't know how to process that. They're willing to do it, but they look kind of confused, like, well, that's... Okay, odd though, okay. It's foreign to our culture. And what Bly was saying was, these guys are of great value. Whether you know it or not, you young guys, they're your answer. Man, I think of those engineers that worked for horrible wages in the, in the aerospace industry of Los Angeles, you know, building things that got us to the moon. Now I realize those guys are dying. We haven't got anything to replace them. We don't have anything to replace them with. And that scares me to death. It just scares me to death. There are certain things that a son can only get from a father or from older men. The finest woman in the world can do a lot of things, but that's not one of them. She cannot initiate him into manhood. She cannot do it. Is this what happened in Europe recently? I mean, over the change of their culture? I don't know. I am not a... See, one of your disadvantages here is that I'm a science major. And when you're a science major in college, there's all sort of other stuff you don't take, like history, <laughs> all sorts of other important... I ended up in the humanities. While other people were learning the history of Europe, I was dissecting things in the lab. I smelled like uh, formaldehyde, embalming fluid all day most of the day in my college years because I was always cutting things up. Or I came out of the chem lab. So I was an unusual seminarian um, because I didn't have that kind of background. I simply don't know. 
Um, I, you know, one story I didn't tell that occurs to me. Give me just a second. Um, I've told some of you this over dinner. My father one time, uh, my mother told the story later on. I didn't know this. I evidently as a boy one time said when I saw a water pump, what's that? My father heard that and he thought it was horrendous that a boy wouldn't know what a water pump was, so he bought a farm. He hired a wino to watch over the thing. He bought horses so that we could learn to ride and take care of a horse. He bought a tractor so I could learn to drive. Uh, he bought um, cattle so that we could see things born and wouldn't believe that, that meat came from a package in a store. Um, bought this whole valley underneath Mount Rainier. Ordered a caterpillar D9 to come out and bulldoze a duck pond there so that we could hunt duck down in the valley. Um, and in the closet of that old farmhouse, it had a crank phone, was heated with a wood stove, we cooked on it and heated it with that single stove. In one of the old closets in one of the bedrooms was ammunition of every caliber from floor to ceiling. There were boxes of, of uh, clay pigeons on the floor, several hand traps, every kind of shotgun load you can imagine, every pistol load you can imagine from 38 Special 357 Magnum, not Kasul, but 45 ACP. Uh, I had my first shotgun when I was seven. Uh, and I would bring my friends up and my dad would put them through a safety course and then turn them over to me so that uh, things went safely during the day. But we were out in the middle of nowhere we could, where we could shoot all day. We would come into that closet and get boxes of 22 shells and fill our pockets with them, go shoot them all and come back and refill our pockets. The next couple of weeks when I came up again, it was all restocked. All of that ammunition was restocked on the shelves. This was like magic. Just absolutely. The, the mothers of those boys were sure their sons were going to die that weekend. They'd heard of this. And the boys thought they had died and gone to heaven. Um, there was something about that, um, that early initiation into that gun culture that was so, so, so masculine. And somehow my mother never, never, maybe it was out of fear, maybe it was out of wisdom, she never broached that subject that I ever heard as to whether this might not be good. She trusted that it was, I think, that it was okay. My dad was running this okay and things would be okay. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine with the hysteria we've got in this country? Um, I live in California. I won't digress on what it's like to be a gun owner in California. I'll just stop here. But it was one of those things that, again, um, sort of initiated young boys into this wonderful thing. Um, and uh, it was all free. You know, there was no charge for it. It just was, that was, he could do that. And it was important. So uh, I forgot to tell that one. And that's an important one to tell. Sorry. Now, somebody else had the microphone. I have a question. Um, you mentioned Thursday that a lot of fathers, um, I guess, learned to be fathers by the way they were fathered. Um, I was with 
my dad and I came to that lunch. He's one my best friend. We're very close. He also kicked my ass mm-hmm. most of my life. I was mm-hmm. a hellion. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy where I am today. Mm-hmm. And I think he did the best that he could possibly do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had plans to go somewhere this weekend, and I heard you speak, so I'm going to come here Saturday because I want to learn something that will make me be uh, a good father. You already and have. I think there are a lot of people in here that probably didn't grow up with the type father you had, yet they may be very close. Oh, yeah. You may have had a heavy hand. And I'm not asking you to judge my father, but mm-hmm. would you just uh, maybe um, maybe draw a line between, I guess, where I came from and then what I could possibly do going forward to, to maybe mesh the two? Or You've already done a marvelous job. There was more, by what you've just said in the last 120 seconds, there, your dad was doing more than just having a heavy hand on you, or you wouldn't even sound like you sound. There was a lot that was going on that was good, or you wouldn't even have sounded like you just sounded. I don't know what it is, but it sure was good. Uh, remember back to what that was. There was more going on, more he was giving you than a heavy hand. So you're not here to tell us that we need to be... Um that a heavy hand is, is the wrong way to do things or no. or to teach discipline or no. to get sermons. I'm, no, I, I I'm think getting kind of a, a conflicting... Um, no, if it's needed, go ahead. Uh, son will do just fine by it. But uh, he can't live on it. He can't live on punishment. It is, there's no nutrition in it. There's not the mail that he really needs. Um, I'm, I'm not nearly worried about that. But I do know that there's got to be some magic where things turn out too good to be true. There's got to be somewhere where, it, where Dad makes it that there's something that turns out that's magic. Somehow. In answer to the question posed, and I think you've touched on this to a degree, you must always remember how it felt when you were that yes. teenager. Yes, that'll do and half the work. You always have to remember how it felt when yep. you were that six or eight year old. Yep. And take, take that with you to your relationship with your son or your daughter. How did I feel when my father did a certain thing? Or how did I feel when my playmates made, yep. did certain things to me? And yep. how, how are you going to take, how are you going to react when your friends do that? And how am I going to react as a father when I see you do something? I think, I think the lesson to be learned is remember how you felt. Yeah, and say so. And say so. You, you've, got, you've got to admit that you have feelings too and that you, you bring some baggage into this equation every time you talk to your kids. That's right. And I think that's very important to remember. Yep, yep. you won't break them by telling them the truth. That's right. The thing that breaks kids is when you can't follow the rules, where the rules change. That's a schizogenic household. When just about the thing you, time you've got it figured out, everything shifts and it isn't that way. That's what will drive kids psychotic. They can go through some pretty heavy and awful things as long as things stay put. Uh, it's the other kind of house that, that drives them nuts, where things are always a shifting. I have a one-year-old son at home, and I'm kind of still in that stage at which I'm trying to analyze how do I keep from completely screwing up this little life. Boy, do I know that one. And um, since Thursday, I've had a nagging question that's been haunting me after I listened to you on Thursday. Um, Something that I've been doing for the last couple of years is looking at the relationship I had with my father. 
and also looking at the relationship that he had with his father. Mm -hmm. And um, my father is probably about your age. His his childhood was in the 50s, kind of the Leave It to Beaver generation. And he had a good childhood, a good relationship with his father, but he also seemed to live with a sense of fear where his father was concerned, kind of the wait till your father gets home sort mm. of thing. Mm. Um, and I know that uh, the way I related to my father growing up was also kind of a societal uh, reaction to kind of the sarcasm and cynicism of the 70s and 80s where parents were concerned. We all kind of thought our father was an idiot. Yep. And now I find myself with this little life in the world in a yes. time when everything is being guided by the internet or, you know, there are chill, there are eight-year-olds sitting on the couch watching Queer Eye for the straight guy. Yep. And uh, is yep. there any hope for us? You are more powerful than all of that put together. And it was given to you from the beginning. You are more powerful than the culture. It's just nobody's telling fathers it's true. You have more power than you can possibly imagine with your child. The TV and the internet will not overcome who you are. And it almost doesn't matter how you do it. Little magic here and there. Um, time just being who you are with him, it can be tremendously varied, but you have a power that the culture will not tell you you've got, and it's all yours. You don't even have to get it, it's yours. You're God to him. Ron, this is a personal question. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Personal question. Mm -hmm. Please don't answer it if mm -hmm. you don't want to. But, but mm -hmm. I'm in the same boat of mm -hmm. a, a young child. Mm -hmm. Did your father verbally say, "Rod, I love you" very often? I can't even remember. Hmm. <laughs> I would have bet my mother into white slavery that he loved me. I would have bet. It, I would have bet the universe onto it. I can't actually remember how many times he did that. Um, Interesting, if you're a father of a daughter, I'll share one with you that I never would have guessed that I learned from Paul. I, uh, I was, yeah, no, I was talking from, uh, from Paul Fairweather. He was talking about daughters, and, and he said, really, daughters are easy. He was talking to a group of us men. He said, really, daughters are easy. Just fall in love with them. Just fall in love with them. They're easy. Um, and another thing he said that I'll never forget, he said, you're thinking that you need to tell Aaron regularly that you love her. He said, let me give you a more powerful line by a factor than that. Look at Erin and tell her that you know how much she loves you. And you will give her her freedom for the rest of her life. Say that again, Rod. Repeat that. He said, Rod, you're imagining that you need to tell your daughter more often that you love her. Let me give you a line that's much more powerful and that will affect her for the rest of her life. Look at her and tell her that you know how much she loves you. And it gives her her freedom. She doesn't have to struggle again with, does dad know I love him? Because you told her you know. It'll change your life. Whoa. A <laughs> um, little different than the last question. I brought a friend to lunch last week, and I didn't really know who I was coming to speak, or what you were going to speak about. And I started feeling kind of guilty that I brought him, because here I am with my dad, who everybody knows we're close to, on the flip side. He's in a much different uh, state of yes. relationship with his father. Yes. On the way out, I said, Chip, I'm, uh, I didn't mean to mm -hmm. say it, but um, what did you think of that? That was pretty heavy. 
would you be willing to come with me Saturday and listen? And he said, I don't want to go hear what all I've missed out on. What can people do to help hear I know, or get I know it looks that like that. Feeling? I know it looks like that. But in you know, maybe you have to take it in slowly. But there actually is in healing there is healing in hearing the story of how it was supposed to be. There isn't just grief. There isn't. There's more than grief. In hearing how it was supposed to be, something gets healed. I don't know how that, but I know that. Uh, I've been in groups of men whose fathers failed them miserably in so many ways. But you can regain ground slowly in hearing stories, real stories, of how it went with somebody where it went better. Why did I, why did I decide to do this by telling stories? For that very reason for that very reason, it heals. That, by the way, is why people read The Lord of the Rings. He was using the classical Jungian archetypes uh, that occur in the dreams of Aborigines and also occur in the dreams of Zurich businessmen. The same symbols occur in the dreams. And that's what Tolkien was using. And that's why people read them as Christians read scripture, because there's something that heals in reading those things. Um, and it does point to the God who really is, but less specifically than C.S. Lewis did in his Narnian Chronicles. They were friends and they used to argue about that over at the pub, how explicit should we be? And uh, Lewis was on the side of let's be more explicit and Tolkien was on the side of let's be less explicit. But there's healing that occurs just in hearing the stories, um, not just grief. We imagine, we imagine it'll be just grief. It isn't. It isn't. Some something goes well, deep last down. Okay. I just I just wanted to ask you um, a lot of we we obviously have a lot of single parents, females, and now we're having some males. Mm -hmm. But I was, uh, my father died when I was seven. I've never felt like I was uh, shorted in any way. Good, good. But, uh, so where does this play with single parents? Well, I can only answer for sons. I can't answer for daughters. But I so encourage those women who know that there is hell to pay unless their boy is around some masculine older men because they're right. They're right. Somebody who stably can be there in some kind of a way um, will be that boy's lifeline. I know. I, I never met my grandfather. He had died by the time I was born. He was one of the eight surgeons that formed the Mayo Clinic. And I know his wife. I met my grandmother. Um, and I know a few stories about him. But I know that there was somebody in my father's life, and he was male and he was older, that enabled him to do what he did with me. It was not just his dad. It was somebody else whose name I don't know, who was mentor, older male, friend, confessor, something. And I know that as sure as my next breath, because I know from what I hear of my grandfather, it couldn't have come from him. I know it. There's somebody that I owe a hell of a lot to, I just don't know his name. 
professor, friend, I don't know. Uh, Rod, uh, I think we want to thank you for the highest uh, uh, power for today. In my personal view, this last two hours has been one of the most inspired times that I have ever been part of in nine years at Church of the Advent. Uh, your passion, uh, your conviction, your uh, absolute frank bluntness is so refreshing. Uh, your grasp of the theology is everything we sought to achieve here, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I invite those who are here today to come uh, to hear Rod's last formal time with us, which will be at uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow here in this room, and uh, I would like, I think, to uh, ask us all to stand, and I'll say a closing prayer. Heavenly Father, take uh, what has been given us and uh, drive it more deeply into our hearts than ever before. Where we have unsatisfactory dads, uh, uh, forgive them and uh, give to us the renewed confidence of male mentors uh, in reality all around us. Embed our uh, uh, needs in your divine fatherhood and thank you for this uh, extraordinary time that we have uh, gained. And may uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.